0: All right, audio is recording down here. We're live on Instagram. We're live on YouTube. If somebody in the YouTube um, could do me a favor and just maybe give me a little thumbs up in the chat room, and let me know that we're good to go. And yeah, Kerwin, Black Bear Masterclass. I think Primitive's actually in here. I'm gonna give him a little. Gonna give him a little wave. Um, I have probably got more, like, DMs about that Black Bear podcast than definitely, like, an average podcast. And uh, I want to think, like, I'm trying to think of one of the ones that was, like, more popular. Maybe, like, Barklow. Maybe I got more DMs about that. But I think... The Black Bear Podcast was just so topical and on such a good time, and I think Jeff did such a good job of dropping like legitimate nuggets that um, people really liked it. So I'm gonna do my best. I will get we'll get Jeff on again for sure. I kind of been keeping. I don't want to say Jeff in my back pocket, but he's a really good friend of mine, and I could have had him on at any time, but I didn't want to take advantage of that friendship and just kind of pimp him out on the podcast, so I wanted to hold off and, you know, wait until, you know, it was, it was, I felt like it was the right time to have him on, so I'm, I'm kind of glad I waited. Um, so for any newcomers, here's how this works. You can ask questions on Instagram. You can ask questions on YouTube. Do not... Um, if you go to my uh, link to, or my Instagram story, you will be able to see the link to go to YouTube if you prefer it over there. Don't DM me anything because I won't see it on Instagram because my phone's locked for the live feed, and don't email me anything because I have notifications shut off on my phone so that I can pay as much attention to what's going on on the screen as possible. So I'm a little more organized than I have been previously for this thing, which I'm grateful for because we've been kind of flying by the seat of our pants the last couple. So here's what's going to go on tonight. And we do have more guests lined up for next week. And my goal moving forward is to try and have guests as much as possible because I think it's just a more engaging way to um, to enjoy the podcast. Hang on a second. I need to drink. Big shout out. I got a couple merch orders lately. I want to give a big shout out to everybody who's bought some merch. If anybody else is looking for something, mindfulhunter.com slash shop. Greatly appreciate the support. Okay, so we're going to hit up kind of three or four main talking points to open up the podcast. Things I've made notes about this week that I want to talk about. And then we're going to get into the Q&A. And shit, there was three more questions that came in this week. I'm going to write them down right now, or I'm going to forget. Uh, That's all right. Hey, thanks, buddy. I'm glad you like your hat. Um, I like my um, protein shaker that you got me. My buddy Darren got me one of those... Fuck Trudeau protein shakers, which is like my my prized possession right now. Um, I wonder... Hang on one second. I'm going to see if I can go into my... No. I can't. That's so random. Like, you figure you'd be able to check... Your your notifications on on this, but you can't um, when you're when you're in it. Yeah, Jay on YouTube, Bird Grabber. I'm super glad you got your merch. My my bad man for taking so long to get that to you. That was that's that's my fault. That shouldn't have happened. Bit of a lazy bitch. Um, okay, first up, I got a little bit of a, of a rant about Zeiss. So hang on. <clears throat> So this, for everybody watching, there it is on Instagram, there it is on YouTube, this is a Zeiss Harpia 95mm spotting scope. And along with maybe like two other spotting scopes, probably, arguably, the spotting scope you can spend the most amount of money on. It's not cheap. So I bought this spotting scope, I had this spotting scope for about a year, and then Even during that year, it was kind of doing some weird stuff. Like I was having problems um, pulling focus correctly and a couple of other issues. Um, So I decided after the end of this season to send it back for warranty repair. Fully covered. Didn't have to spend a dime. So I sent it in, I think, early September. The spotting scope was gone for five months. So they don't tell you this, but... Nothing actually gets fixed in North America for Zeiss. Because of the, I guess, the the, the fine detail of fixing Zeiss uh, materials, everything goes to Germany. So they say there's a Canadian distributor, Gentech, that handles Zeiss repairs. It's kind of bullshit. All they really are is a shipping way station. So you get your RMA. You pack up your spotting scope or whatever other piece of glass you've got and you ship it to Ontario and then they stick handle it from there. And basically from there, it gets shipped down from this to the States and from the States, it gets shipped over to Germany. It gets fixed in Germany and then completes the round trip on the way back. Now, that whole thing took five months and I'm sure somebody's going to tell me it has some bullshit to do with the flu that she'll remain not named on this podcast. Um, that alone was super frustrating. I tend to, you know, be pretty rough on Vortex on this podcast. And I'll say this. I've had three repairs from Vortex. All three. From the moment they left my house to the moment they got back to my house was under a month. They knew where it was at all time. If I ever emailed checking in, they got back to me within... A couple of hours at the most. They always had updates for me. Like I will, I will give I will give Vortex some serious credit. Their warranty department is dialed. And when you shit, send shit to Vortex Canada, it stays in Canada. It gets fixed in Canada, and it comes home. Or they just do the cross-border shipping so fast that it does. It seems like it stays in Canada. I don't. I, I. I don't know. And to be honest with you, I don't really care what it is, but it's, it's outstanding. So this thing is gone for five months, and I'm going to see if the mic can pick this up. Right, hang on, I'm going to turn the mic up. So this thing's gone for five months. I take it out of the box. I pick it up, and this is what I hear. Can you hear that shit? What the fuck? Okay, I'm going to put it down. So yeah, spotting scope is broken. Um, basically, what happened is they replaced the spotting scope with a brand new spotting scope, sent the brand new spotting scope back to my house, and it's not the actual lenses because you can look through the spotting scope fine. It pulls focus fine. Uh, I don't know if there's like some plastic bits that have broken off in there. I, I personally have no idea, but I literally didn't have a fixed spotting scope for two minutes. As soon as I opened the box and picked it up and heard all that shit jingle jangling around like pocket change, I immediately, you know, had a panic attack, phoned them, took me a while to get somebody on the phone. And I was like, what is this shit? Um, yeah, they gave me a maraca instead of a scope. It's crazy. And I, I immediately took out my phone and I videotaped it. I literally like you could see the box with the with the packing slips in the background of the video and I'm like I'm documenting this to show there's the open box. I literally just picked this thing up and this is what it sounds like. And I phoned the dude and I will say the dude when I finally got somebody on the phone like he was he was a nice guy. He's like, "No, that's total bullshit. No, we we will fix this for you." And I said, "Listen, man, like my concern right now is that I lost this thing for 5 months." Am I going to ship this back in a week? Are we are we gone for another 5 months here? Like is this thing going all the way to Germany and he couldn't give me a hard answer. I but he did say something about talking to service in um in the states. I think because it's so clearly broken any decent manufacturer for what you pay for that scope should just stick a new scope in the mail. Do you know what I'm saying? Like here, have this one back, a brand new one in the box should should be shipped out cuz that's that's bullshit. So anyways, that's my little complaint about Zeiss. It's not so much that it had to go back for warranty repair, it's that sending an optic away for 5 months to me seems a little bit excessive. I think you need to do some work on your back end. That's that's bullshit. If the vortex can get me my shit back in four weeks, I think that that should be the industry standard. And you probably need to work on your on your game if that's the kind of you know length of time it's taken you to get shit back. So, anyways, just my thing. Okay, up next, I'd like to talk about this Kafaru goat hunting film, um, Kings of the Mountain. Um, now, did. Sorry, I just saw something there on the edge of my camera. I would like to see from a like a, a maybe a, a list of like hands raised either in the IG chat or on um, YouTube how many people saw the film before it got taken down. And I think there's a bit of a delay, so I'll let you guys you know take a moment and figure all that out. But let just let, let me know raise your hand. Let me know if you saw, if you saw the film, and then once I get an idea if anybody, if anybody saw it, I'll ask you some questions. I did not see the film. So take everything that I'm about to say about this film with a grain of salt. All right, Lander saw it. That's be interesting. I should have talked about this on the podcast with you because I would have been interested to hear your thoughts on it. I'm not going to get into like a big, you know, uh, bashing rant here because A, I didn't see the film, and B, from the people who I know did see the film, it wasn't like it was that terrible anyways. But for people who aren't familiar, Frank and a couple other guys went up to Alaska, went goat hunting, and shit got a little Western. There's a couple main points that people have issues with. One, there was a lot of shooting going on and not a lot of bullets hitting goats and two they shot a goat in an area that they couldn't retrieve it from and they, they they thought they could but it wasn't like it it didn't fall an extreme amount and then become unrecoverable like where they shot the goat it was it was unrecoverable and they got a shitload of blowback basically this thing blew up on rock slide and there was whole threads about it since it blew up on Rock Slide, the film got taken down, the Rock Slide thread got frozen, and Kafaru did a podcast about it. They talked about potentially re-editing the, the film. So far, as far as I know, the film has not been put back up, the thread has not been unfrozen on Rock Slide, and it's just kind of a dead issue. And for my two cents, I would just, if it was just me, I would just, like, let it go. Like... um, let sleeping dogs lie. Nobody really has, you know, yeah. I don't know if there's that much of a benefit of, of bringing it back out now. But anyways, like I said, I'm not here to drag th- people through the mud. Shit happens when you're hunting. Mistakes happened. Accidents happened. Here's why I wanted to address it because I've been making hunting films for five years now. Um, and I've, I can honestly say I've never... I, I'm proud of everyone I've put out. I'm transparent in my shit. I don't hide any of my shit. And I just wanted to say for people who are thinking about making hunting films, you are most likely underestimating the amount of effort and forethought that it takes to convey a, a cogent storyline and keep people engaged tell the truth, keep everything upfront and honest and not make something that paints hunting in a bad light. So, and I'm not saying that's what they did, but I mean, yeah, man, they're a big company and they have a responsibility to put material out that reflects well on hunting and whatever you want to say, from the couple of people I've talked to that did see it, there were there and and I heard Aaron and Frank say this. They they admitted themselves there were elements of the film that did not reflect well on hunting. We're all allowed to make mistakes. It's not the end of the world. I, you know I'm not I'm not here to drag you through the mud. But I did want to take the opportunity because it's and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here. But I take a lot of time and effort to try and tell a story that is transparent and honest shows how hard hunting is, but also keeps people engaged. And I think sometimes people underestimate, because I watch other people's stuff and there's a lot of garbage out there. And I think sometimes, I'm actually, there's a couple of BC content creators I'm going to be having on here shortly. Alpine Carnivore is supposed to be on, and there's a couple other podcast guys I'm going to have on here shortly, because I've just kind of randomly stumbled across like more than usual, some BC content that I think is really good. And these are all example of guys who I think are doing really good, really good shit. Um, so anyways, that's all I really wanted to say on that. I was a little disappointed. Um, you know, the one guy that they had on the podcast was saying, you know, this is a film meant for hunters and we shouldn't have to explain ourselves to non hunters. And it's kind of like, well, When you put shit up on YouTube, you better be willing to explain yourself to non-hunters or you're going to be the one who's, you know, directly at fault for causing a shitload of bad PR for hunting. And maybe we don't like it, but if you don't want to do it, then don't put shit up on YouTube. Put it on a private platform, give people a password, and only send it to hunters. I'm thirsty as hell today. All right. Quick bodybuilding update. Only because Lander felt like he had to bring it up on our podcast and everybody's been busting my balls all week about shaving my body and getting tanned and standing up in front of a crowd in a banana hammock. Um, So we're currently 18 weeks out. Um, shit's kind of starting to get uh, full on my diet got dropped again. I'm down another three pounds. So 258, which sounds ludicrously heavy for most people, but it's 15, 15 pounds under, uh, now, now, now everybody's paying attention. That's hilarious. Um, anyways, yeah, I'll update you in a minute. Um, so, uh, Down to 258 pounds, diet's starting to get serious. Uh, Today's a rest day for me, so I only had carbs in three of my meals. I had 100 grams of rice in two meals and 45 grams of cream of rice in a third meal, and the rest of my meals were nothing but meat and veggies, so it's uh it's starting to get yeah i do need to we should we should start a hashtag the sitka Speedo and tag barklow in it and see uh see if we can get some corporate sponsorship dollars behind sending me to the vancouver open um anyways um it's going really well i'm not I'll post some physique update pictures at some point. I don't give a shit. I would I'd post them right now or screen share them right now. It doesn't doesn't bother me. Um, I just don't think they're particularly impressive or interesting at this point. So I'll wait a little bit until it's a little a little bit more, you know, dramatic type of deal. But um, things are going really well. Like I'm I'm feeling okay. Like I'm I. There was a lot of anxiety that I was you know just took the last three years and I had not created anything that I was you know gonna be proud of of displaying but I do feel um, I feel like I'm on the right track so that's kind of that's encouraging and the pictures are looking good coach is happy I'm happy training is going good diet is starting to get tough. I still got a lot of fat to trim by the time the show gets here in 18 weeks, so I'm assuming it's only going to get worse from here. Cardio is pretty high, so I'm doing 35 minutes of cardio six times a week, and that's incline treadmill at 130 beats per minute target heart rate. And then I don't even know what my calories are. Protein is around... I don't know, 300 grams a day on training days and maybe 200 grams a day on non-training days. And if I had to guess, I would say, three, six, nine, carbs are probably around 400, 450 grams on training days and maybe 250, 200 on non-training days. So non-training days I do not eat a lot and it's, it, it gets tough to fill out the days. Um, but that's the whole point of this. Like we're, I, I almost real prep is going to start at six weeks at 16 weeks. So I still feel like I've got a ways to go until it, uh, it really kind of kicks in. So, um, 16 weeks, I think, um, oh yeah. So flavor gang sauces do not ship to Canada. um, I actually just went on. I filled my cart with a whole bunch of shit. I really want to support Ross. Funny thing is, Ross and I have the same coach. Um, Dom Cardone is my coach, and Dom Cardone is Ross's coach. And Ross is the owner of Gaines Bakery, who makes the Flavor Gang sauces. Um, And they don't ship to Canada. And because COVID is still all fucked up, I can't just... um Oh, is there a Canadian site? For the Flavor Gang sauces. Well, son of a bitch. If you have it, could you stick that in a DM to me? I, I'm sure I can just Google it anyways, but that's badass, man. Thank you very much because to be quite honest, I'm getting sick and tired of sweet with heat mustard and um, um sweet chili sauce. So for anybody who doesn't realize, one of the bitches about bodybuilding diets, and especially when you start getting into prep, is that there's really only a couple of sauces you can use that aren't just big calorie bombs and full of sugar and fat. Like ketchup is basically liquid sugar. So you're always looking for these kind of like innovative ways to flavor your food to keep it interesting. Hot sauce is a great one because there's lots of hot sauces that essentially have almost no calories. Well, there's this guy, Ross Flanagan a bodybuilder out of the States, and he came out with this line of sauces. It's basically this whole company. It used to just be called Gaines Bakery. And he would have... um, He came out with sauces, these diet hack sauces um, that were, like, sugar-free and, you know, tasted really good. And then he's recently come out with these bag of Gaines products, which is essentially just flavored cream of rice. Um, But they're supposed to be really good. And one of the big issues about being in prep is keeping your food flavorful. So this is a pretty big deal that he's come out with all these sauces. So if anybody wonders what I'm talking about, it's that I tried to order these sauces, couldn't because I was Canada. Somebody just hopped on in the chat and let me know that I can actually order off of a Canadian version of the site. So hopefully I'll I'll dig into that earlier. I got some other questions rolling in, so I'm going to hit them now so I don't lose them in the chat. Thomas wants to know, do you know of any Ontario channels that are worth checking out? Thomas, I don't. Um, I don't follow a whole lot of Ontario hunting just because it's not really my cup of tea. The closest thing I would recommend, and I guarantee you've heard of them, is the hunting public. Just because they do a shitload of that East Coast stuff, which I would assume would be similar. There is a guy who follows me, um, and we chat all the time, and his name on... Uh, it's Glenn. His name on here is Primeval underscore Link, and he's an Ontario guy. Maybe I can shoot a message to him, and I'll, I'll make a post if I come across any. And then Matt says, "When hunting Spencer Spencer's buck, you mentioned not wanting to ever be as heavy as you were because hiking was hard. Is that still a concern? You're still doing bodybuilding, yeah, Matt. You you hit the nail on the head. I'm I'm done, bro. Um." there will be no more 250 plus pounds hikes in my future it it was a real wake-up call doing that mule deer hunt so i had injured my knee maybe three weeks prior to that hunt and then went and did that hunt anyways at you know 255 260 pounds and basically just shredded my knee down to the core and only the last three to four weeks have i been training legs at 100 percent and that hunt was in the last week of october so november december january february so i was like semi out of commission for almost four months because of the damage that i did to my knee and i know that uh um a primary cause of that was the fact that i was just too fucking big And, you know, slap an 80-pound backpack on a 250-pound guy, and you got a 330-pound gorilla humping through the woods. And when I step out of my—Jeff wants to know, when I step out of the shower at 260 pounds, what does your wife call you? And I was going to insert an inappropriate comment, but at 260 pounds, your wife doesn't want to call you a whole lot because you're a bloated, fat piece of shit. So— that's the other reason I'm looking forward to like trimming down some of the weight. She'll probably want to have something to do with me again. It's a bit of a selfish endeavor to say the least. Uh, back to Matt's question. I the goal is to compete somewhere between 200 and 210. I think by the time I get down to sub 5% body fat, that's probably where I'm going to be at. And then after the competition, I'll probably just naturally float back up to maybe 220. And I would like to just chill at 220. If I was to do a competition in the future, I just wouldn't do any more of these crazy bulking phases because it's just too hard on my body. At 43 years old, I don't want to walk around at 270, 280 pounds. Um, So I would do a much more measured, lean bulk. And I do feel like... I've put on most of the size I'm gonna put on now, and it would just be more about fine tuning. But 99% likelihood, this is like a one and done um, deal for me. I will um, do this one competition. There's another one a week later that if I place in the top three of the first competition, I can go compete at the second competition, which is a much bigger stage and would be super cool. So probably do two of these things back to back and then like check that off the bucket list. And get back to doing the shit I love. Um, another huge reason for me to stay down and wait is that I would like to get back to competing in jiu-jitsu. My daughter's six years old, and I told her when she was six, we were going to start training jiu-jitsu together. And, um, you know, I did pretty well competitively as a blue belt, and it's something I'd like to get back into. I think it aligns more closely with the type of training I need to do for hunting. I think you can... Um, I think you can... Train for jujitsu regularly and it complements the training you do for backpack hunting. I think if you seriously want to bodybuild, they're counterproductive pursuits. I think you can stay in shape, you don't look decent naked, you can go in and do a bro split. That doesn't, you know, counter counteract the the training that you're gonna be doing for for backcountry hunting. But if you want to be like a full-blown gorilla, it's just, they're just too different. And I've learned that over the last three years. So I think what I'd like to do is get back to having, you know, jujitsu competition being my primary sport, you know, go in and do two lifting days a week or something just to keep some good shape on me and then do backpack cardio for the rest of, of what I do. So that's going to be the plan moving forward. Um, oh, hey, I noticed Tanner just hopped on. I want to give a big shout out. Frontiersman Gear um, just came back from a weekend at the Wildlife uh, Sheep Federation of Alberta fundraiser banquet, and he donated um, one of his custom knives. And I think, as far as I know, it went for $2,000. So that is pretty insane uh, donation for a small local British Columbia company to be making to conservation. Another shout-out, I know he picked the... um, Well... Clients picked, because we had a big Instagram poll, that uh, for the next three months, 5% of all gross sales are going to be dedicated to the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. So if you are looking for any type of hunting blade, you cannot pick a better company to support than Tanner and Frontiersman Gear, so head on over there. And I know... Sometime in the near future, I don't have a date yet, but I do hear rumors that he's gonna be doing a release of his mountain hunter series, which I think is the um um the lynx and the pumas and the uncia. I don't know which of the three are gonna be released, but I'm I'm waiting just as eagerly as um uh uh everyone else because I, I personally want a Pumas, but I think. Based on his posts, there should be some coming out here in the next couple months. So if anybody's looking for like a good fixed blade processing knife, um, based on what I understand about the, the blades, the two that really uh, I'm attracted to are the Lynx and the Pumas, and I think I'll probably be doing um, the... The pumas. So keep an eye out for that. If you don't follow him on Instagram, because or or join the newsletter, that's how he lets everybody know about releases. So um, it's Frontiersman Gear, all one word. His name's Tanner Danish, kick-ass dude, kick-ass knives. I've already got my my build in the works. Um, I think he's about twelve to fourteen months out for custom builds, but these mountain hunters should uh, come out. Pumas next, my man put me on the list. I'm stoked. And uh it looks like my buddy got outbid for Tanner's knife. Somebody had deep pockets to go 2k for that knife. I know what those knives cost and they definitely did a bid for conservation there because that's that's definitely more than than Tanner would charge you to build that knife, but it was an absolute, you know, work of art. All right. Um what do we got next here? I wanted to give a small refresh to my small wins campaign. Bruce sent me in his update and it's locked in my phone right now and I can't read it. So I'll I'll update them next week. But I wanted to start a small kind of campaign going into this hunting season and it's called three small wins. And the idea is you pick three things that you have complete control over that you want to accomplish in your hunting season this year. And it can't have to do with killing an animal. Okay. So my three things are, and I kind of have four actually, because I was talking to somebody else and they brought up one that really got me excited. So, um, first one, I'm taking my six-year-old daughter on her first overnight scouting trip. Number two, I'm going to do my longest solo hunt at 14 days, unless I tag out early, but it's stone sheep, so I'm I'm ready to eat the possibility that no one's coming home early from that hunt. Number three, I'm going to use a pack raft for the first time on a hunt. And number four, I'm going to take some newcomers on a hunt who've never been before. There's one or two guys I'm thinking about taking on a black bear hunt, and then I'm bringing my brother and my father out to BC. My brother's already here, but we're going to be doing a hunt. So that's the idea. The idea is small things that you've got control over so that regardless of how your hunting season goes and regardless of what you're able to actually put on the ground, at the end of the season, you can look back at your list of three small wins and be like, I had some swim, or some... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fucking lander, man. He makes these asshole comments. And then right in the middle of my like eloquent rants, I, <laughs> I lose my train of thought and the son of is like take swimming lessons prior to the boat trip. Um, the goal is to be able to look back regardless of what, of what happens. Um, you can see I accomplished some shit that I've never accomplished before and I've progressed as a hunter, whatever that, whatever that means. And the idea is like, send me these, I'll post them or, or you can post them and tag me in them. And I'd like everybody to like put them out as much as possible because listen, I'm all about trying to kill big shit. I love killing big shit and I'm not apologetic about that. But I think there's a lot more to this thing that we do that deserves attention as well. And I think maybe if we glamorized some of the other shit, like some of the adventure and some of the hiking and some of the photography and some of the ways we go about doing this, maybe people wouldn't feel so pressured to post, you know, grip and grins on Instagram and make bad decisions like kill young sheep and do other stuff. So this is just my little way of trying to shift a little bit of the attention off of um, only... You know, glorifying. Yeah, I said glamorizing. I meant glorifying. Only glorifying the kill, and let's glorify some of the other elements of of hunting, like spending time with family, spending time with friends, getting out into the backcountry. So there, that's my little that's my little rant on on that. If you send those to me, <clears throat> I'll keep track of them, and maybe we'll like do a little thing at the end of the year. I'm a buddy over on the island, so he's got three. Hunt a new species. I like that. That works. Go out of province. Perfect. And don't die. I, that's fantastic. So don't die. Knock the other two off. And you're golden. Um, okay. Up next, I have had an unbelievable amount of questions about sleeping bags lately. I think maybe it's because I posted that review of the, um, the kind of innovative Sitka bag that Barklow came out with a little while back. I don't know why. Um, but I, but I, people ask me for sleeping bag recommendations and I always come back with a quilt recommendation. So I wanted to take a moment and talk about the difference between quilts and sleeping bags and when I use each. And I might do a whole separate video on this. So I'm just going to keep this high level for now. So for people who have no experience whatsoever with a quilt, I want you to think about a quilt essentially being a sleeping bag with no bottom, okay? It's got a toe box and then no bottom because insulation of any kind, synthetic or down, only works when it has loft because it's able to trap air in tiny pockets, And by compartmentalizing that air, it can trap heat or cold, depending on the situation. But when you lay on a sleeping bag, you are compressing all of that loft out of the material, and you essentially have useless fabric underneath you. This is why your sleeping pad is so important, because your sleeping bag does not keep your back warm. Your sleeping pad keeps your back warm warm. The sleeping bag does essentially nothing. So once I started running a quilt and realized how much weight I could save by having no back, like you're essentially ditching one third of the fabric of your sleeping bag and it's useless fabric because you're crushing it. Um, I haven't looked back. There's only, there's very rare situations where I run like a crazy full on, you know, minus 20 synthetic bag when I go on that you know, crazy goat hunt in the winter. And other than that, I run quilts 100% of the time unless I'm testing something. Now, the other thing is I'm a big dude and I'm a side sleeper. So the benefit of a quilt is that when you attach it properly to your sleeping pad, you can do anything you want in there, man. It doesn't have the same constrictive, claustrophobic kind of sensation that your sleeping pad Does you can roll around in it, you you can move, um, and it keeps all the heat trapped. And I hear people complain about quilts, and the only thing I can come up with because most of them say, "Oh, they're just not warm," and it's like that's not even remotely true because they're the same. They provide the same warmth and insulation as the temperature ratings because the temperature ratings are the rating systems are the same as, as sleeping bags. So you can't just say a quilt isn't warm unless you've taken you know, a shitty quilt or uh, uh, the, 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 the wrong um, temperature rating quilt. What I think people are doing is attaching them to their sleeping pads incorrectly or not at all. So here's the thing. On all quilts that I'm familiar with, there will essentially be three attachment points where you can do stuff with the quilt there's one elastic band at the bottom that goes all the way around the um, sleeping pad um, at the bottom. And then halfway up, there's another band that can go either around the sleeping pad or around your body. And then up at the top behind your neck, there's normally a button that will do it in. So the whole idea is you slide the one band, you slide your sleeping pad through the one band and then you get into your quilt. You clip the one little rubber band behind your back, and then you clip the little button behind your neck. At that point, as soon as you lay down and make contact with the sleeping pad, you are now 100% covered, and you can do anything you want in there. You can roll around, and you will, the, the way it is, like it's tucked underneath your body, so as long as your body is in contact with the sleeping pad, you have a firm seal between yourself and the exterior air. Um and I just don't think people are taking the time to actually attach all those systems appropriately. So I would just urge people, there's a whole world of quilts out there that in my opinion are a far superior um sleeping system than the sleeping pads that are or sleeping bags that are currently on the market. So I would just urge you to Take advantage of those and experiment with it a little bit. And if you're in Vancouver and you want to see how one of them attaches to a sleeping pad, just give me a shout. You can come over, I'll show you how it works. Um, and I'll also I'll put it on my list to do a video of how this works because I do think there's a lot of really cool options there that people just aren't taking advantage of. So there's my little quilts versus sleeping bags rant. I think it's worth some some time. Quick shout-out to Thomas's three small wins. He's going to do his first backpack hunt. He's going to explore more crown land and scout more hunting areas closest closer to home. Okay, so now we got a question coming up that's in my backyard. So Loops Outdoors have a seven-day trip to Haida Gwaii planned for August, getting water taxied in and doing some alpine hunting ever done something similar there. Any recommendations for Haida Gwaii August gear? Yeah, bro. I fucking lived on Haida Gwaii for two years. I have been on almost every square inch of that island. I've been on three unsuccessful elk hunts on Haida Gwaii, and I've probably killed 25 deer or something on Haida Gwaii. Uh, on Haida you're allowed to kill 15 deer a year for anybody listening and wondering how it was possible that I killed that many deer. Um, there is a buck season that is nine months long. It's only closed for three months. And the doe season is six months long. They are Sitka blacktail deer. They are tiny and they are delicious. Um now here's the deal: you can go to Haida Gwaii and hunt, and you'll kill shit just driving around. Like, it's not going to be the most insane, intense hunt you've ever had in your life, but you could literally go pick a wreck site, set up your your truck camping thing, and you could just go drive logging roads and go walk deactivated roads all day. And by the end of a you know a seven day hunt, you'd probably kill five or six deer and you'd go home with a full freezer and you know, they'd all be kind of like small, you know, nothing really to, to write home about deer, but it'd be a fun, it'd be a fun trip and it would be cool. Now I've never done any backpack hunting on Haida Gwaii. I do know some people who have, I, I, there's gotta be some big deer back in there somewhere because nobody's pressuring those deer. And my recommendation, if you want to send me a DM later on, I'm happy to circle some spots on Google Earth where I think there's probably some big deer hanging out. Um, They would all be like pretty shitty places to get to because you're basically going to be driving to the end of logging roads and then hiking up. I don't personally have any like honey holes over there. but it's mostly West coast stuff is where I would spend my time and energy. And I'd probably go in on the, like the Northern kind of half of the Island, like head in from Massett. Um, what's the, uh, I'd, I'd head out the Dean personally, um, and head all the way out to the West coast. And then there's a whole fringe of a big country out there where there's just nothing. There's no login. There's no roads. There's no people. Um, The hunt you are doing is, now the other reason I'm, it's a weird time to go. Well, August isn't bad. I don't know why in my head. I think I thought it was, I thought it was July. They'll be hard horned by August. So that's actually not a bad time. I'm curious when, the. for some reason, I feel like the doe season might open up. September 1st, but I could be wrong about that. Maybe it's July 1st, the doe season opens up. Um, Whatever you're doing, make sure you go in the doe season because if you're not going to kill a big deer, at least you should be killing lots of deer so that you can bring, you know, enough home. Um, But yeah, hit me up on Instagram, DM me or send me an email. Give me a little bit more information about where you're going. I ran... You know, forestry engineering operations over there for a fairly large contractor for two years. And I've lived in trailers and taken boats and helicopters to the vast majority of that island, so I can at least tell you where I think some cool spots to go are. But if you're getting water taxied in, you might uh, you might already have a pretty good idea of where you're headed, but I'm happy to happy to help out if I can. Uh, How are we doing for time here? All right, it's 20 after nine. Maybe we'll go. I'm trying to keep these things to an hour because to be honest with you, I wake up at 5 a.m. for work and going to bed at like 11 or 12 is too late for my old ass. All right. Let's do a couple more. We'll run for another 10, 15 minutes. Okay, a lot of these next questions were kind of back cataloged. From a few, um, a few. Uh, oh wait, Adam. Adam had a quick question, and I don't want to lose track of it. So, what's your experience with injuries in BJJ versus weightlifting? This is a really interesting question. Now they say BJJ is the only martial art that you can spar at one hundred percent and go home injury free. And I'm going to agree to that with a small caveat being like ego plays a big role in that. You know, as an older guy in BJJ, you want to think about tapping early and tapping often because playing some gym hero bullshit and sitting in an arm bar longer than you have to is just a recipe for disaster. And the other thing is as a larger guy, I will sit in things and try and muscle them too long and get like, you know, weird sprains. I also play a lot of top half and end up in bottom um, half quite a lot. And you, you take a lot of chest pressure when you do that. And I did get, you know, some pretty recurring kind of lower back stuff. But here's the thing. If you're able to check your ego at the door And if you're able to um, train with guys who aren't like idiots. And the funny thing is, the more well-trained they are and the more accomplished they are, even though the scarier they will likely be, the safer you are. Like I would rather roll with an absolute assassin of a purple belt than a white belt. Any day of the week. Because, like, white belts just do dumb shit. And you're just like, I-, I don't know. And that's when people get hurt. Because they go to do something dumb. They apply way too much pressure. And you're just like, what the fuck? Like, where in your head did did, did you think that what you're doing was a good idea? Like, like, play out the tape. Where was this even going? I don't even understand what kind of chain you were trying to put together here. But the thing is, people panic in jujitsu. Because it's very stressful and you get like some big dude like me laying on top of you and you start doing you know weird shit whereas like when you're rolling with like purple belts and up specifically because blue belt is still you're still figuring shit out you're like kind of a white belt that's just not stupid when you're a blue belt as soon as you get like upper stripe purple belts and up like badass dudes who like know what's going on they know what the technique is They're not going to muscle things if it's not there. They're going to find the openings that are there and take advantage of them. And so I would rather roll with dudes like that. I used to roll with a competition team at a couple of different gyms, and that was my favorite because it was fast-paced. Everybody was super motivated, but everybody was super controlled. And as long as you would recognize, I'm training, I'm getting close. If something's, I'm just going to tap and like kind of move on to the next opportunity... Um, uh, no, Mike, I'm a, I'm a blue belt. Um, I, I've been a blue belt for a while, probably like I'd have to go look at my belt. Maybe I got two stripes on my blue belt. I don't even really remember. Um, I have a fairly decent competition history as a blue belt. I fought at worlds. I won a couple matches. I have a, I have a gold medal from an IBJJF tournament at, at blue belt in Seattle I probably have a half a dozen medals, um, gold medals, as a blue belt, um, in different tournaments in BC and and Washington, um, but haven't rolled probably since my daughter was one or two. Um, yeah, so at least five years since I've rolled, which means I don't. I'm a piece of shit now, and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, anyways, I'm kind of going on a long winded way of of saying here. But I I would argue weightlifting is the same. Like there is no, there are sports during which things are going to occur that are outside of your control and and you're going to wind up getting injured and you just have to accept that as par for the course. Like it's just going to happen. Weightlifting and BJJ, I think are two exceptions. I think you're always going to have minor aches and sprains in both of those, just because if you're trying to reach your maximum potential as a human being and you're riding shit that close to the line, you're gonna overuse some things and you're gonna pay the price for that. But that's okay. You take a week off, a little rub A five three five, a couple cold showers, some Advil, you're back in the game. Not you, you know, not a big deal. Um But in both these sports, it's your ego that will kill you. Because in BJJ, if you get into something and you're not willing to tap, they will take you to a place where you're going to get injured. You might not, you're not going to die. And maybe you win that little gym battle. But it's like, so what? So now your back is all jacked up for three months because you didn't want to tap to some guy who has less experience than you. It's just like, it doesn't make any sense. And weightlifting is the same way. All of the injuries I've had in weightlifting were stupid. They were because I either didn't take enough time warming up or I was lifting and I didn't feel 100% and I just kept going anyways because I was trying to beat the logbook. I'm a big fan of progressive overload and that philosophy of training basically is built around the fact that you are trying to beat the log book every week in some way, shape, or form. You're either trying to add a rep or you're trying to add a pound. Um, So, yeah, I don't think either one has more propensity for for injury. And that's one of the reasons I want to get back into BJJ because um, I think um, I can still do it at my age and I love competing. That's the thing. Like, There's nothing like competing in jiu-jitsu. I mean, that's not, there's a lot of things I haven't done in life, but for the things that I've done with my life, I don't have anything else that really compares with competing in jujitsu because you get, you get that fear, man, you get those cold palms and you like, you feel like you're stepping on the field for battle and you know, you feel like I'm I'm either going to go out of my shield or I'm going to come home victorious. And as a man, and I'm not trying to be sexist here. I'm sure women need this kind of stuff in their life too. But as a man, in order to, me to for me to feel like a man, I need that kind of shit. I need battles. I need to go to war with other people and myself so that I can test my mettle, see where I stand, see where I break mentally, emotionally, physically, and then take stock of what I'm actually made of. And the only way I can figure that out is to find that line and then try and go across it. And I love you know jiu Jitsu is just like it's built for that. it's a, it's a great training ground and opportunity for you to get to know who you are. You can kind of get the same thing in in weightlifting, but to be honest, it's not as intense. like there's the, the, the you know, I did um, I was doing leg press yesterday and I had 26 plates on the machine, which is just shy of 1200 pounds, I think. And that's scary. Like I was scared. I was like, I could unrack this thing and it could like come crushing down on me. Now I worked my way up. I felt good, but I went and found a spot when I did that. And that was my little war for the day. That was me confronting some demons and being like, you know, how deep can we go on this shit? Um, and I got I got six plus two. And for you progressive overload nerds, what that means is I got six unassisted reps, and then I had two spotted reps, kind of past failure at the end. And that's a big win for me because last week was uh, twenty four plates for twelve plus two. So the fact that we went up, you know, ninety pounds, and and still had you know a significant amount of, a rap, amount of reps, that shows some progression. So. Yeah, and I I would agree that there's elements of the backcountry that are the same way, Mike. That um, that it's really your ego that you got to keep in check in order to stay safe. And I think that you know, as you know, men and and women. I mean, that's the battle of the of age. You know, like in my youth, I had energy and I had ambition, and and that was the tools that I used to keep me moving forward in life. But it was my ego that you know fucked me over consistently, me thinking I was better than I really was or being more arrogant or thinking I didn't need other people's help or thinking I was you know, capable of more than I really was or whatever the case may be. And like the older I get, the less important all that shit is to me. And the more I try and stick my ego in my back pocket and realize that the more open and honest and humble that I can be, the more successful I'm going to be. In life so that's what I try to do um okay let's get back to some Q a we'll go for we'll go for 10, 10 more minutes um, which release for a beginner and then there was another really really uh, release question about back tension versus hinge so what we're talking about now are archery releases and let me do a little bit of a primer on archery releases for people who aren't super familiar so when you're shooting a compound bow, you are essentially using a release aid in order to fire the compound bow. You do not pull it back with your fingers. You have some type of aid that attaches to your hand or you hold on to it. It has a little hook. You put the hook through the D loop, you pull your bow back, and then depending on what type of release it is, you activate the trigger mechanism, the hook opens up, the release shoots. And it enables you to get a very clean release of the string. Whereas if you had your fingers, you know, by letting it go, or even like a thumb tab or something, you are going to introduce inconsistencies into the arrow flight. It's another reason why trad archery is so much harder than modern archery because your fingers are on those strings. So you need to release that in the exact same way every single time. The most common form of release aid is called an index trigger figure release. So it's essentially a strap that goes around your wrist, it has a trigger that goes underneath your index finger. You draw back. You anchor your fist to just behind your jaw and under your ear. And then what you're supposed to do is lay your finger on the trigger of the index finger release. And then with back tension, kind of draw your scapula together. And that will, in turn, pull your index finger across the trigger of the release, and it will release. That's a very hard thing to do psychologically because it requires you to be flexing certain muscles while keeping other muscles slack. Most people think they're doing it, but if you play shit back in slow motion, that's not what they're doing at all, and they're in fact punching the trigger. So most people have a tendency to just pull, 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 and then snap, punch the trigger with their finger. And the thing is, when you psychologically punch a trigger, whether it's a rifle or a bow, you have a pre-ignition response. So essentially, your brain knows that the the bow is about to go off and you will tense up momentarily before the bow goes off. And you can see people do this in slow motion replays when you, when you film people shooting. And by introducing that slight pre-ignition response when the arrow goes off, it'll have an inconsistency in the flight. And it will probably, depending on what your particular you know, reaction is, you'll be high right, low left, whatever. But you'll notice you're consistently kind of in the same wrong area of the target. Now the other reason that index finger releases and any trigger finger, even a thumb button, produce issues is because of target panic. Now, target panic is also related to a pre-ignition response. So because psychologically, every time your pin drifts in front of the bullseye of the target, you tend to pull the trigger, your brain then associates your pin with being on target with an explosive reaction from the, from the bow, So you actually become psychologically primed to be afraid of your pin floating in the middle of the target. This is what they call target panic. So what happens is, as soon as your pin gets close to the bullseye, you unconsciously punch the trigger because your brain doesn't want that pin to get to the middle of the target because then it knows the bow is gonna go off. And people do all kinds of weird shit You know, if you've had target panic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. People will actually lift their bow up above the target and then slowly let their bow drop, and then they will punch the trigger as the pin passes the bullseye of the target. People do this with rifles all the time because they can't get the rifle to stay still, so they will float the scope across a target and try and time that scope being on target with punching the trigger of the rifle. All of this shit is terrible, and all of it is fixable. A good buddy of mine, Joel Turner, runs Shot IQ. I've been through his course, I've been to his house. He's somewhat of a controversial figure because he's very opinionated, but the dude is dialed and knows his shit. Goes into way more science on this than I'm gonna bother on this part podcast. But all this target panic stuff is fixable. It all has to do with closed loop and open loop decision-making systems and, and essentially, why this is important with the release aid that you choose is that it directly impacts your ability to be vulnerable to target panic. So when I went down to see him, he's like, first thing you need to do is get off of an index finger release and move to a hinge. And so a hinge doesn't open with the punch of a trigger. What a hinge does is when you hook onto your D-loop and then you rotate the release through a kind of plane of rotation, when it gets to a certain point, these these two sears, like these two crescent moons, are sliding across each other and they just pop open. So the thing is, you kind of can, but you can't really punch a hinge release. The same is true of a back tension release. A back tension release would be like the Gorilla Back or the Silverback, sorry, from Knock On from Dudley. I might have my issues with Dudley, but um, he builds some pretty cool products. And so both the back tension release and the hinge release remove your ability to fall victim to target panic by taking away your ability to punch the release because you have to go through these like kind of drawn out motions and you you don't know when the bow is gonna go off. And because you don't know when the bow is gonna go off, which is a good thing, by the way, in archery or marksmanship, you want a surprise release. When you don't know when the bow is gonna go off, you do not have that pre-ignition response of that, that tightening up. And therefore you have consistent arrow flight now, that's a whole bunch of fucking gobbledygook, but all of that is to say that I personally believe I think most people are better off with shooting, shooting a hinge. I don't have a lot of, exp- of of experience with a back tension release. I think they're probably just as good if you're familiar with them. I like the hinge. I practice with a hinge. I hunt with a hinge. I've had the same hinge. I, I I do it all, and in my opinion... It is the best combination of a release that you can have manual control over when you need to, but also responds best to this like slow back tension surprise release system that's going to equate to the least amount of target panic and the most amount of control over each of your shots. Um, and the only difficulty is that transitioning from shooting with a hinge or sorry, shooting with an index finger to shooting with a hinge is that there there is a bit of a stumble step there. Like you need to get, you're going to learn, like most people start with the index finger releases and then if that doesn't work for you and you transition to a hinge, you're going to go through a month or two where your shot's going to go to shit because you kind of need to relearn a couple of things. And so my recommendation would be like, just skip all that and go right to the hinge. And here is the second benefit of the hinge. When you... If you get comfortable with the hinge, but you don't want to hunt with it because it doesn't give you that ability to respond immediately, you can get a similarly shaped thumb button release that will give you that ability to punch the trigger when you need to. Most people will say, oh, but what if there's wind and what if the animal's about to move and I need to punch the trigger? My argument has always been, if there is something that's going to happen that's going to necessitate you reacting In a millisecond, you shouldn't be taking the shot anyways because the situation just got too chaotic. You need to back out, reassess, and then make another decision about whether you're going to proceed. But some people are just more comfortable with it, and that's fine. And here's the cool thing about target panic. It takes a while. So if you're practicing all the time with your hinge and then you just go, you know, you practice for a week before you leave in a hunt with your thumb button and you go hunting for a week with your thumb button... Odds are, psychologically, you're going to be in control of that shot the whole time. I would argue if you then kept up with the thumb button for a consistent amount of time and you happen to be prone to target panic, you would most likely see that target panic return, whereas it won't with a hinge or a back tension release. So long story short, my personal recommendation is that everyone do everything with a hinge, But if you wanted a hybrid model, I would say do a hinge and a thumb button. And listen, I'm not, I'm brand agnostic here. I don't really give a shit what hinge or what back tension you buy. I personally use the fulcrum by. Uh, true ball and I have an abyss thumb button that I've never actually used, but I bought them together because they're the exact same form factor. So it's the same anchoring point, all the rest of it. And when you switch releases that can change your anchoring point, which is going to change, you know, the way you aim and how you, how you set up for your shots. So that's my, that's my two cents on, um, what release I think is ideal for archery. All right. That's bringing us to an hour and 10 minutes. We're going to shut things down. I still have a bunch of questions that I didn't get to, not only from this week, but from last week as well. So my apologies. But it's kind of not... I, th- this relieves my anxiety. I like going in the next week with a half a dozen questions because then if anybody doesn't put stuff in the q and I still feel i um, confident I'll be able to get on here and talk about kind of nonsense for an hour and at least fill the air. So that's it for tonight. Um, as always, I greatly appreciate you guys hanging out, shouting out some questions. Um, hope you know people found some kind of value in this. Uh, this will be posted tomorrow on the main podcast channel. Do me a favor, engage with the platform in any way you can. Like, comment, share, subscribe killing it on the reviews on um, Apple Podcasts and Spotify lately. So I greatly appreciate that. And then, yeah, I mentioned the merch earlier. If you want something, go get it. If, if not, no big deal. Um, yeah, and as always, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next week.